Welcome back, everyone. Brady Volpe here, and we're diving right back into our deep explorations with a Back to Basics series. Today's episode, Navigating the Ingress Labyrinth, Management, Mitigation, and Mastery, Part 2. This promises to pick up right from where we left off and catapult us even further into the complex realm of ingress. If you joined us for part one, you'll remember the fascinating unraveling of the intricacies of signal disruptions, meaning that ingress comes in many forms and from many sources. So be sure to catch part one if you missed it. And now, with that foundation, we're ready to dive into the nuts and bolts of actually managing this elusive beast we call ingress. Fortunately, I have the ever-insightful Ron Rannick by my side to guide us through the journey of understanding how to track down ingress in today's Back to Basics series. Speaking of Ron, if by chance you are not familiar with his extensive background and expertise, let me just take a moment to refresh everyone on Ron's bio because it is quite extensive. Ron Rannick is a 50-year veteran in the cable industry who has worked for cable operators and vendors during his career. He is a fellow member of the SCTE and co-founder and assistant board member of the organization's Rocky Mountain chapter. Ron was inducted into the Society's Hall of Fame in 2010 and is a co-recipient of the Chairman's Award, an SCTE Member of the Year, and is a member of the Cable TV Pioneers Class of 1997. He received the Society's Excellent in Standards Awards at Cable Tech Expo 2016. He was recipient of the European Society for Broadband Professionals 2016 Tom Hall Award for Outstanding Services to Broadband Engineering and was named winner of the 2017 David Hall Award for Best Presentation. He has published hundreds of articles and papers, and has been a speaker at numerous international, national, regional, and local conferences and seminars. And Ron continues to contribute to the industry through Cable Labs and the SCTE, and will again be presenting at this year's Cable Tech Expo. Thank you, Ron, for your tremendous contributions to the industry. Ron, it's always a pleasure to team up with you for these explorations. How are you feeling about today's journey? I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for the kind words, Brady. It's a pleasure to be here with you and and to share, uh, hopefully, what folks uh, take away as words of wisdom on the subject at hand, which is a closer look at ingress. So let me share my screen. Great, Ron. And bring this up. And I want to get this from current slide. So you should be seeing <clears throat> the title slide for today's presentation uh, that shows a rather nasty-looking bout of ingress uh, in an upstream plant uh, somewhere. That's uh, hard to say where that is, but it's that's not real good, and that's definitely problematic. So we're going to talk a little bit more about ingress today. Last time we had a broader coverage uh, that included signal leakage, ingress, and direct pickup. So we'll get through this today. I do want to do a quick recap from part one on a couple things. One, of course, is a definition of just what the heck ingress is. And um, here the definition that I put together is the unwanted entrance of over-the-air signals into a cable network caused by degraded shielding effectiveness of the network's coaxial cables and or other components. And uh, it's the opposite of signal leakage, basically. And I've got a footnote that goes with this. The direct pickup interference is similar to ingress, except that over-the-air signals or a signal will enter a susceptible set-top box, cable modem, TV set, test instrument, or other device directly, often without the need to be physically connected to any cables or other external devices. And some people have seen that on, on certain instruments where they actually put a terminator on the RF input port and still see uh, interference from, say, the nearby LTE transmitter. So that's that's considered direct pickup interference. And it's usually related to the shielding of the, uh, the case of the device uh, or maybe lack of shielding might be a better way to describe that. <clears throat> so recap, continuing from part one, 
where does ingress get in and where the heck does leakage get out? Uh, they tend to be very closely related, but they may not, uh, there may not be a direct correlation all the time. So um, some of the more common ones include poorly shielded customer premises equipment connected directly to the subscriber drop, inadequately shielded cable and equipment. Um, and if there's a high power transmitter nearby, this can, uh, can really aggravate things. Loose, damaged, or improperly installed connectors, adapters, splices, and other pieces and parts. Damaged cable shielding, and this can come from a bunch of things like abrasion uh, with tree limbs, uh, burns, bullet and pellet holes, corrosion, cracks, cuts, rodent chews, and even staples through drop cable. Hopefully you're not using staples, but um, if you do, it uh, it's a possible source of creating ingress should that uh, staple penetrate the, uh, the jacket and the shield, which is not a good thing. Damaged RF gaskets on passive and active device housings and faceplates. Um, loose passive device faceplates. Loose or warped amplifier housing lids. And, of course, everybody follows the manufacturer's direction <laughs> on the, the bolt tightening pattern and torque pattern, right? Yeah. Everyone follows it. To the T. Yeah. If you don't, you risk warping the housing and, and uh, degrading its ability to properly shield from an RF perspective, but also you degrade its ability to keep water out. And right. How many of us have opened up a, a faceplate or an amplifier housing lid and, and had water come pouring out? That's uh, that's not a good thing. Uh, and of course, retail grade cables and connectors and passives that are typically installed and um, are purchased and installed by the subscriber um, can be great sources of ingress and leakage. And of course, theft of service. So all these things can be problematic let me move this in yeah so that water's not supposed to be in there those aren't like aren't like spare canteens out in the field <laughs> <laughs> that's right keep the water out we don't want it in there and uh, exactly. likewise keep the rf out we don't want that getting in there either not from the over-the-air environment and when i say rf from the over-the-air environment that includes um, discrete signals narrow band signals so think fm over-the-air broadcast ham radio cb shortwave uh, but also wideband noise from uh Things like power line gap noise and, yeah. and uh, other sources. Yeah, and Wesley McGravy says, got to love the text that cut I dropped to give the water somewhere to drain out. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, all right, so let's talk now about um, some of the current techniques used to manage ingress. And understand that a few of the things that I'm talking about here don't necessarily have anything to do with, with keeping ingress under control, that, at least from keeping it that is from keeping it from entering the plant, but rather managing what uh, some of us like to call the signal to junk ratio. Um, so what does that mean? Well, you can, in some cases, increase uh, cable modem upstream transmit power by uh, a variety of techniques. That doesn't get rid of the ingress, but let's say you've got a poor signal to ingress ratio as shown over on the, the far left graphic, and then it gets better as the transmit power of the modem increases. The, uh, the ingress stays the same, but the modem transmit power goes up. So you have a better um, signal-to-junk ratio, if you will. And then uh, you'll eventually reach a point where the modem is has maxed out on its transmit power. You have no cable modem transmit headroom left. Um, and you may even start to get to a point where you um, begin to clip the upstream laser, which is not a good thing. So it's important to, to properly manage uh, operating levels in the cable network. And part of that, of course, is something called long loop automatic level control or long loop ALC. This doesn't really have anything to do with ingress, but it is a big part of the way DOCSIS cable modems interact with the cable modem termination system or CMTS. If there's something that affects the received signal level at the CMTS, and whether it's a, a change in the plant, a splitter that's added, some damage to the drop, whatever it is, the CMTS will command the modem to increase or decrease its transmit power uh, as needed. And that's called long loop ALC. And it's important that that be set up properly and and um, and that levels are managed properly. And of course, um, then we want to get into uh, a look at some of the current techniques that can have an impact on uh, the signal to junk ratio going beyond long loop ALC and, and some of the other uh, tricks that are out there. Um, and some operators over the years have used what are called return path equalizers or return path attenuators or return step attenuators. They have a variety of different names. Um, but these things are passive devices that are installed in the in the drop, typically at the tap port, maybe at the ground block on the side of the house. But what they do is add um, loss 
in the return spectrum while having a negligible impact on downstream. So maybe a dB of insertion loss on the downstream, but but a much higher loss on the upstream. And what that does is uh, reduce the signal level making its way to the CMTS. The CMTS says, ooh, the uh, received signal dropped. So it tells the modem, increase your transmit power. So the modem does. And by doing this, you can, um, if you do this properly, get a uh, tighter window of transmit levels among your cable modems. And then you can crank uh, the overall transmit um, uh, window up or down a little bit to further help manage that carrier-to-junk ratio or signal-to-junk ratio. And, Ron, is it better to install these closer to the cable modem or closer to the tap? Uh, best place, if you're going to do it, is closer to the tap. Um, the, the cable modem, that's not going to do a lot of good, really, if you just if you just put it there. But if you put it out at the tap port, maybe you have to put it at the side of the house. But the closer to the tap port you can get it, the better, uh, because you're now taking into account the things that may be going on in the drop or the in-home wiring. So yeah, that's the, the better place. That makes sense. And, and Ron, just for a second here, I want to go into the chat um, room. Um, so, hi, Business Bambi. She says, woohoo, Brady and Ron, my favorite two Friday boys. Love your lectures. Thanks so much for them. So, thanks, Business Bambi. Good to see you. Um, Ready Kilowatt says, I know the techs who used to do that in the AMP return path. Um, so, for the taps. And uh, Wesley McCravey says, will those attenuators be compatible when we fully roll out OFDMA in our Comcast market? What say you, Ron? Oh, that's a great question. And typically, um, those return path attenuators or equalizers or wh whatever they're called, depending on make and model, um, have the equivalent of diplex filter functionality in them. And wh what that means is if you change your um, split in the network and go from a sub-split operation to a mid-split or high-split, those things are going to have to come out. Um, because they're not going to they're they're not going to work well where you've expanded the upstream spectrum uh, and levels are going to get real wonky with those kinds of devices in place because the ones that I just talked about in in the vast majority of situations are going to be uh, designed for the split that you had when you installed them for example subsplit so those would be uh, pieces and parts that need to come out uh, when you uh, when you make the switch to a wider bandwidth upstream, either with mid-split or high-split operations. So good question. Yeah. Thanks so much for the questions in the chat room. Please keep them coming. Yes. Back to you, Ron. All right. Well, taking that uh, that previous slides um, discussion a, a bit further is the idea of condition taps. And condition taps have been around for a while, uh, but instead of using uh, a third-party standalone passive device that, that you screw into a tap port or maybe at the ground block or something... This functionality is actually built into the tap, and the, the tap uses plugins. And if you look at the block diagram here on the, uh, the right side of the screen, you can see um, this uh, gray outline box is the, the tap itself. And you've got the forward RF input in the upper left. There's a directional coupler, and the tap leg of that directional coupler feeds a, a, a socket for a plug-in uh, reverse attenuator or forward inverse equalizer. And, uh, and then that in turn goes to the uh, the splitters and the tap spigots and what you want to do of course is is optimize um, return path levels by using these plugins and it's it's really quite effective and, and quite honestly if you're expanding your downstream to say 1.8 gigahertz or maybe even 1.2 but certainly as high as 1.8 gigahertz and uh, if you're going to a mid split or high split um, band plan, you just about have to use uh, condition taps if you want levels to play nicely. Now, here's an example of a design that uses condition taps, and um, I'm not going to go through all the levels on here, but it, this particular uh, example uses um, reverse attenuators, the plug-in reverse attenuators, forward equalizers, or forward inverse equalizers, and they're, they're labeled on here, and you can see the various levels. Now, this is a 1.2 gigahertz example with a mid-split um, return, so the 80, up to 85 megahertz. And what you see is the CPE input down below here at 1.2 gigahertz, and then uh, the 102 megahertz CPE input, and then uh, up 85 megahertz upstream transmit. And that's highlighted in red. And you'll note that the levels are actually fairly close to each other. 46, almost 45, 46 and a half, almost 45, 47 and a half, 46, 47 and a half. And that's the goal, um, right? To get those levels pretty consistent. Yeah, you want to get them fairly close to each other because you're tightening up the window. And then you could play around in the head end with, say, a, 
an attenuator on the combining network or at the input to the CMTS upstream port to vary that entire window, move that window up or down to, uh, to more closely manage uh, and optimize uh, that signal to junk ratio. So this is a real good tool. And I think as operators um, migrate to uh, DOCSIS 4.0 technology, there'll be, I think you're going to see a lot more of this. Yeah. And before we, uh, so Renee asks in the chat, he says, in our network, OFDMA mid-split enabled with these 42 megahertz pads allows us to see where they are. It works, but massive roll-off ICFR issues present in the 45 to 85 megahertz channel. Great comment. And yes, that's a that's a good way to find out where they are. Yes. Uh, it's one of those things. Well, yeah, we went out and took them all out. Well, yeah, sure you <laughs> Not did. All Just, of them. <laughs> yeah, the data only filters and and high pass filters and other things that may still be out there. Well, yeah, maybe you got them all, but more than likely you missed a few. And that technique will definitely help you um, find the ones you missed. You bet. Now, another really good tool is ingress cancellation. This has been uh, part of DOCSIS technology since the introduction of DOCSIS 2.0, way, way back, what, early 2000 timeframe, 2001, somewhere in there. Now, inter interestingly, ingress cancellation is not actually defined in any of the DOCSIS specifications, um, but rather it is supported. And, and what a wonderful what feature. It's a wonderful, it's a fantastic feature. The the uh, burst receiver chip vendors um, designed this capability into their, their upstream silicon that goes in the CMTS upstream line cards or upstream ports. And what this does is remove uh, in-channel ingress, and it works really well. Um, so it was uh, introduced in the world of DOCSIS 2.0 way back when as part of an umbrella of technologies called Advanced Phi that... Uh, it's still in use today, and, and uh, I think just the, the important thing to note here is make sure it's activated. Um, I, I have seen in some cases where operators just forgot to turn it on or didn't know that they had to turn it on. So you need to make sure that the configurations are set up in your equipment to support this operation. It, it, make sure it's turned on and because uh, <laughs> it works. It won't prevent um, out-of-channel carriers from doing nasty things like clipping the laser. You still have to manage that that kind of stuff. But in channel ingress, uh, it works really, really well. Yeah. And by the way, the spectrum analyzer screenshot here is a very early demo from 2002 that uh, some, some of my colleagues did. Massive and, amounts and of ingress. It's a, I mean, you look at the return path and it's really nasty. And in this case, it was a 3.2 megahertz wide 16 qualm signal yeah. um, with some, uh, it's, it was centered at 16 and a half megahertz, which is pretty low back in those days frequency wise yeah and just um, and there was ingress present and there was no perceived degradation in the cable modem performance with this much uh, so the, the blue lines under there that's the ingress which you're saying and the ingress yes. cancellation is basically eliminating those blue lines um, from what the CMTS is seeing and the data is able to arrive at the CMTS without any uncorrectable code word errors due to that ingress cancellation right yes and the secret sauce to making that work, of course, is just that. It's secret sauce. The, yeah. the chip vendors have their, their own ways of doing that. So uh, we'll call it uh, something that's under the hood there, but you, know, you can't uh, – well. I'm not going to tell you exactly how it works. It might be very generic about it and say, well, that's a digital technique that, that uh, removes it or, or that's whatever. That's great. Love the secret sauce because it works really well. Oh, it works very, very well. Just make sure it's turned on. Yep. Uh, and then uh, continuing on the CMTS side of things, understand I am not a DOCSIS person. I'm an RF person. But – Make sure your CMTS configuration is, is optimized. Uh, so as we just talked about, make sure that upstream uh, transmit levels are, are properly managed. The uh, commanded nominal receive power, that's uh, the set point at the CMTS. Make sure that's been uh, optimized. Um, you may have to do something like CMTS power adjust continue or, or whatever the um, comparable command is for your specific CMTS. Uh, because if if signal levels at the CMTS input are low, you can use that to uh, allow those modems to stay online and not get tossed out the window. Um, yeah, and in, sure in particular yeah. here, that, that dynamic modulation profile, um, so it's like the third line up from the bottom in, in the right-hand side box. It says cable upstream zero modulation profile 224223222. That's yes. something I see many cable operators don't take advantage of in CMTSs. And, and so what happens is like when, it, when noise and when ingress, you know, we're talking about ingress, when ingress comes in, um, your, your modems could be using, could be operating at 64 qualm, 
But when the ingress comes in, they see that noise and they'll automatically drop down to say 32 qualm or maybe 16 qualm or even QPSK. That's such a useful feature in the CMTS because from the subscriber side, they're still able to transmit data, their modems will stay online in the presence of ingress. And I, I, I think it's, it's such a shame when, like you said, it, on the previous slide with ingress cancellation, make sure you turn it on. This is kind of a similar thing with dynamic modulation. It's, it's a feature that's in a CMTS. We want to turn it on because when that ingress comes crashing in, we want to keep the subscribers online and happy. Oh, absolutely. And it works and it works well. Yes. Um, so, you know, optimize your forward error correction. There, there are some tweaks you can make to forward error correction um, with your CMTS in the upstream. Um, so optimize it for the condition of your network. The dynamic modulation that uh, Brady just shared some wonderful comments about, load balancing, uh, modulation profiles, all those things you want to optimize. So work with your CMTS vendor um, to ensure that you're doing it right and you've got this stuff configured properly and, and of course, turned on and that you're actually using it. It can really make a big difference. Okay, a few other tools. Well, you don't see a lot of these anymore, but I think some operators may still have them. Um, in the early days of two-way operation, most cable operators installed high-pass filters. Not all, but uh, I think a, yeah. a significant percentage did. Cool. And what these would do, you can see by the frequency response plot in the lower right, it basically knocks out the return path spectrum and passes the downstream. Um, and this was this was really effective, particularly where you had a lot of noisy drops. And not very many two-way subscribers. And so what you could do is put um, high-pass filters everywhere in the network, um, except for those subscribers with two-way services. And then that would really help to manage or keep keep the noise and other junk under control until you could get out there and fix the problems. And then as more and more subscribers uh, started taking advantage of two-way services in those early days, take out the high-pass filters and, whoops, got some Ingress coming out of that drop, so fix it and, uh, and then carry on. These days, not too many operators still use high-pass filters. In some cases, when they do, they may be what are called windowed high-pass filter, where um, instead of just blocking out everything below, say, 42 megahertz, it, it does block out almost everything, but it passes, a, say, a, a narrow band of frequencies, perhaps where a set-top box out-of-band carrier is transmitted or or maybe where uh, where you've got just a single uh, SC QAM signal from a, a cable modem, but uh, I don't think you'll even find too many of those out there anymore. But they're but they were very very powerful tools in the day. Yeah, uh, Ron, just a, a quick, quick chat question from Renee. Renee's saying that dynamic modulation is for OFDMA only, or is it for SC QAM as well? So R Renee, that uh, dynamic. Um, mod modulation that we just talked about that's actually for SC qualms. For OFDMA, we use something called um, PMA, Profile Management Application, and it does something kind of similar to what we showed for the SC qualm channels for the um, dynamic um, modulation profiles. Um, but what it does for OFDMA is it creates a stepped modulation. So anytime you have impairments in the OFDMA channel, it'll change the actual modulation right around the frequency where you have impairments. Um, so if, if you've not heard of PMA, the profile management application, go ahead and Google that. Uh, something the Cable Labs created and then um, vendors such as um, um, the company that I work for now, Open Vault, they offer a solution for that that can help you get up and running on that. Good question. All right. And uh, while we're looking at some of the current techniques that are out there, um, a couple companies uh, over the years have introduced what's called dynamic return path switches. Um, and those switches remain open, uh, which basically means that ingress doesn't pass through. In fact, nothing passes through. So this could be installed in standalone components that look like um, distribution passives or maybe even into a, into a line extender or something. Um, they never really got a big foothold in North America, but these are still used in uh, in Europe uh, in, in quite a few markets over there. But it, but the uh, the switch stays open until an upstream signal from a cable modem is received, and then uh, that closes the switch and allows the signals to pass. Of course, if there's any ingress coming out of a building or a house or whatever, that will also pass through, but um, at least it's not there all the time. It's, it's only there when the modems are actually transmitting. Uh, a company called Proxilient is a, an example of one of the manufacturers that had this technology. They called it DIB or dynamic ingress blocker. I know when that was first introduced, it was not compatible with SCDMA, but 
I think the good news is not too many operators were using SCDMA. It's my understanding it doesn't work well with OFDMA, but that may have changed um, over time. Um, in some cases, it requires operators to increase the length of what's called the upstream data preamble on ATDMA signals, the SCQAM signals. Um, now, an important point with these dynamic ingress blockers uh, or dynamic return path switches is because they respond to RF power. They don't respond to a DOCSIS signal directly, uh, but rather they respond to RF power. So if you've got really, really strong ingress coming in, that can cause the switch to close. So, um, But it's still a tool that's been used um, more so in Europe than in, uh, than in North America. Right. Another clever idea was introduced by Technetics several years ago, and they they uh, they call this ingress safe. But what they did was was introduce a 180 degrees degree phase shift between, uh, say, a splitter's two output ports. So you have a line splitter or directional coupler on the on the distribution line. Um, there's a 180 degree phase shift between those two ports. Now, ideally, what that does is if you've got um, say equal amplitude ingress. Um, coming in from two feeder legs to this splitter in the, in the return direction, then the 180-degree phase shift between those two ports would, would cause one of them to be out of phase with the other. And if they have the identical uh, amplitude and then now 180-degree phase shift, you get cancellation of the, of the ingress and noise. Well, practically speaking, you're not going to have identical amplitudes um, coming in from two different feeder legs. And the phase is going to be – they're not going to be, have the same phases necessarily either. But Technetics does – claim an average of about 6 dB to 12 dB of reduction uh, with this technique, which is, I think is still pretty substantial. Um, so that's a, that's a clever idea. And it wouldn't cancel the DOCSIS channels because you would, have, you would never have the same DOCSIS channels coming in from two different feeder legs. They, they that's were, right. You know, you're always going to have different channels coming in. Yeah, it's going to work on the, the unwanted stuff. Right. All right, so as we continue to look at current techniques um, to manage ingress, the obvious one, of course, and you hear this all the time, keep the plant tight. The, <laughs> it's so simple. It is. The, yeah, well, it's simple <laughs> for me to sit here and say it, for you to say it. And, yeah, and for the but for the techs in the field, it's not that simple. Yeah, this is job security, I think. <laughs> uh, but you know, the, the bottom line here is, this stuff gets in through degraded shielding. That's that's it. So you've got to prevent ingress from getting in in the first place. And when it does, I won't say if it does, I will say when it does, you go out and find and fix the problem. Um, now notice here in the picture, you can see a cracked shield underneath the cable jacket. So the tech found the leak and uh, the ingress point and shaved off a little bit of the jacket, took a nice picture of it. So you can see, okay, that's where the crack shield was, and of course that became an ingress source and a leakage source. So uh, it, because this acts like an antenna, the presence of ingress usually means you've also got leakage occurring. And of course, if that leakage exceeds FCC or other government limits or causes harmful interference, regardless of what those FCC limits are, it's got to be found and fixed. Um, that's just the bottom line. So but Ron, how would one ever find that crack when it's when it's hidden underneath that that black coating that goes over the the coax cable, that's that's oh, be that very be, hard to find. It can be very hard to find, and that's where you may need a a directional antenna or perhaps an external um, antenna connected to your leak detector to you know do a little um, direction finding sleuthing to find out where the heck that's happening. You may see a kink in the jacket, which is a good indication that there could be a crack underneath. The jacket, but in some cases you don't see any evidence of a kink or ding or anything else. the The crack is just there, and um, it's it is hard to find. But yes. uh, the techs have developed some pretty good techniques for tracking it down. But directional antennas and other things work really well for doing that. As does a you could use a near field probe to find something like this. Particularly if this is say in an expansion loop uh, near a pole. Uh, if you had a near field probe accessory to go with your leak detector, then you can find you can get down to within a half an inch or so of where the actual um, source is. Yeah. And Wesley, who sounds like he's talking from experience, says that looks just like North Alabama market. Laughing out loud, the squirrels have eaten all the pecans and started on the feeder lines. Oh, <laughs> so, oh yeah, road squirrels. damage. And the last time in, in part one, I showed a bunch of pictures of of uh, leakage sources and we had two or three good photos of rodent damage most likely squirrel chews they, they just do a number yeah. on uh, on the cables yeah. 
Yeah, really, right. really kill it, Watt. I love your, your image there. He says, fox hunting. Yes, that's a good way to put it. Um, you need, uh, you know, as part of this uh, current technique of keeping the plant tight, you've got to have a good leakage monitoring and repair program in place, and you've got to use good pieces and parts. So that means good quality cables, connectors, passive, proper installation practices. If you leave a bunch of loose connectors or loose faceplates, um, that's going to be problematic. And you'll note that I state there's a there's room for improvement here, and there always is. Uh, the ongoing leakage and monitoring, tracking down and fixing problems, um, particularly ingress when it happens. The unfortunate reality is as long as we've got coaxial cable in our networks, um, we're going to be battling this battle um, of uh, managing ingress and leakage. Now, I want to comment a little bit on the, the photo to the right here. You, you'll see that the tech is using a leak detector fairly close to the source of the leak. Uh, but notice the, the field strength reading is 2,500 microvolts per meter well really high that's a bogus reading and why is that well it's because the leakage measurement is being done in what's called the sources near field region you need to be doing a measurement in what's called the far field region to have an accurate field strength indication yes you'll get a number here but it's a bogus number so what that means is get back about three meters away from the uh um, the source, measure it then, and then you'll get an, a good, accurate indication of what the field strength is. But if you get too close to a leakage source, you're going to get a bogus reading because you're in the near-field region. And the inverse square law no, no longer applies when you're in the near-field region. So you Very can't even do a, a distance uh, offset correction to fix that. All right, so keep that plant tight. So that means aggressive. Aggressive. Downstream leakage monitoring and repair. And I've been harping on this for decades. The the FCC's 20 microvolt per meter leakage limit in the roughly 54 megahertz to 216 megahertz range, frankly, in my opinion, is not good enough. Um, I think most cable operators have found that to help with ingress, <coughs> you need to keep leakage below maybe 5 to 10 microvolts per meter uh, for reliable or more reliable two-way operation. I remember talking to at least one cable operator that said their, their internal company spec was 2 microvolts per meter. Now, it's not two wow. microvolts. It's microvolts per meter. That's tight. Really tight. And I've, I've, I've talked to others who, uh, who do aeronautical flyovers, and rather than um, target the FCC's 90th percentile in the flyovers, they target the 98th or 99th percentile. And I've heard of some operators even cranking up a test a leakage test signal for aeronautical flyovers 60 dB or so higher than, than their normal operation. And uh, what they do then is identify where the leaks are and go find them and fix find them and fix them with that higher transmit level signal. But they they target this higher percentile and that helps to um, keep things under control. Right. And of course, high quality drop materials, installer training, both uh, in house and contractors. Follow the more up. the better. <laughs> Excuse me. Yes, follow up uh, QC is an important point. That's something a lot of people overlook. Do. Do random sample um, QC inspections of uh, installations, disconnects, um, reconnects, all those things. Um, pick a number, 5% maybe, and you go out and inspect those and make sure things are right. And if uh, if you find issues, then you can address that with training um, that um, that may pick up may pick up things or cover things that perhaps was overlooked before. Quality control can do a lot. Oh, big time, big time. And then monitor upstream and downstream ingress, identify problem nodes, of course, dispatch techs to uh, repair the, the nasties. Um, all the major test equipment vendors today, and that's Arcom, Digital, Comsonics, Effigis, Trilithic, uh, which uh, was acquired by, uh, by Viavi, now goes by the Viavi name, have for several years been, been uh, manufacturing and shipping leakage detection equipment that is digital compatible, and operates on multiple frequencies. That's important because the, the industry has discovered that it's not good enough to just monitor for leakage on a single frequency. Now, in the old days, yeah, most everybody monitored um, for leakage in or near the 108 megahertz to 137 megahertz aeronautical band. But uh, we've since found that as we've expanded our downstream operation, that doesn't work anymore. Uh, you can have a plant that's pretty tight down in the aeronautical band, and it can be leaking like a sieve up, uh, you know, 600, 700, 800 megahertz. So it's important that you monitor on multiple frequencies. Um, this is extremely critical. 
There are some other uh, tips and techniques that you can use if you've got some nasty downstream ingress, say from LTE or something, getting into a DOCSIS 3.1 OFDM signal. Um, and I show that example in the graphic here. You can create what's called an exclusion band. You do you set this up in the CMTS, and it's it's basically a set of contigu contiguous subcarriers within the OFDM channel that's set to zero value, uh, and that helps to avoid interference um, if this interference is severe. And some operators can even create an exclusion band and insert a, um, a legacy SC QAM signal. I don't know too many that are doing that, but that's that's a a possibility. But th th you could do this for really nasty ingress. Um, even better, uh, you can use PMA, Profile Management Application, to find where you've got ingress interference and use then bit loading. So you basically reduce the modulation order on the subcarriers affected by the ingress. And this way, you're not giving up spectral efficiency. You're still using those subcarriers, but at a lower um, lower data rate and with a more robust lower modulation order. So this is this really helps you to um, optimize the OFDM signal to your plant's condition. So so this way you're still getting the maximum throughput um, for the existing conditions. And I will add this as a side note. The Phi-Link channel or PLC in an OFDM signal is frequency agile. You don't have to leave it at the default value in the CMTS. In fact, that may not be a good place to put it. Um, the CMTS vendors just have a default value, so you can turn the thing on and it's there. Uh, but if what you want to do is look at your, your over-the-air environment and see if there's anything that could potentially leak into the plant as ingress and interfere with the PLC. So you can place the PLC in a part of the OFDM channel that is not susceptible or is less susceptible to over-the-air interference when ingress does occur or other types of impairments. So take advantage of that and, and uh, optimize the placement of uh, the PLC. Ron, just a quick break. There's a lot going on in the chat. Um, Peter Whitman has joined us back. He's answered some questions for Renee. He's also said with OFDMA and PNM and or multiple IUCs, you can have different modulation orders. For example, the mini slot is certain frequency spectrum in the OFDMA channel, not, of course, not at the same time. So he's really kind of explaining how PMA works. Um, so he says this means DOCSIS 3.1, a DOCSIS 3.1 cable modem can have 1K QAM at mini slot tw 2 or 20, I think, and the DOCSIS 3.1 cable modem 2 on the very same mini slot at a little time later can get scheduled 64 QAM from the CMTS. It's very cool stuff. I completely agree with you, Peter. Thank you so much for adding that into the chat room. Ready Kilowatt goes on to add. He said, has the change to all digital plant from analog to digital mix reduced the number of leakage violations, thinking about average power versus PE power. And he says he's also wondering about your thoughts on poisoned frequency channels. So. <laughs> um, well, first of all, the switch from analog TV channels to digital signals doesn't reduce leakage. Um, if there's a cracked shield or a loose connector, the signals can still leak out. The difference is that the power spectral density of digital signals is spread out because those digital signals are noise-like. And oftentimes a, a narrowband um, receiver may see an elevated noise floor where there's a leaking SC-QAM signal or OFDM signal, um, but there's still leakage there. And depending on its field strength, it can be harmful. Um, Several years ago, um, a group of engineers came to my house and we turned my backyard into an antenna test range and we characterized digital leakage. And this was, oh gosh, I, I want to say 2008, 2009 timeframe. And I had engineers from the leakage detector companies and from SCTE and from cable operators. And my wife was very gracious and ordered pizza for us. <laughs> we had uh, commercial, all kinds of commercial equipment. And what we showed was... Um, a couple things. And then we wrote a paper about this and presented it at SCTE. Uh, but we showed that leaking digital signals can cause harmful interference. And we showed, uh, well, the example we used was in the two-meter ham band. Um, so I set up one of my ham transceivers in the backyard, and we set up, we had uh, calibrated leaks, and we had, um, you know, we really went to a lot of 
trouble to make sure that this was all repeatable and, and uh, very scientifically done. And we showed that that leaking digital signals could cause harmful interference. And uh, the paper that we did for Cable Tech Expo really illustrated that. Um, now, the other thing that we um, found, and I remember talking to John Wong at the FCC afterwards uh, at Cable Tech Expo, but we found that a leaking MOCA signal could also cause harmful interference. And in that case, uh, I had uh, borrowed a, a MOCA uh, a signal generator from uh, my colleagues and set it up as a signal source at uh, 1.3 gigahertz. I think it was around channel D1 in, uh, in the MOCA D frequency band. And we did, in fact, show that on a, uh, a 23-centimeter ham radio receiver that's, that operates from 1,240 megahertz to 1,300 megahertz, that a leaking MOCA signal could cause harmful interference. And I remember talking to John Wong, who he's, he's retired now, but he was with the FCC. And I remember chatting with him in the hallway about that and said, John, this is what we found. And his eyes got as big as dinner plates. I think he's, he said, holy cow, this is, <laughs> this is not good. And um, I think what it points out is that even in the world of a digital network or all digital network, those signals that get out can cause harmful interference to the over-the-air services. So just because you go to all digital does not um, eliminate leakage interference or for that matter ingress because i think as we all know lte and over-the-air broadcast yep. and other stuff can can get into the downstream and stuff can still get into the upstream and even though we're all digital it can still cause harmful it can still cause operational problems with our cable networks great stuff uh, a real yeah a real powerful powerful tool is full band capture in uh, cable modems or or doxis doxis um, equipped cpe this has been around since the days of doxis 3.0 uh, I think it was uh, introduced in 2012. Basically, turns your DOCSIS device into a spectrum analyzer of sorts. Maybe more of a spectrum monitor is better, but to a spectrum analyzer of sorts. And uh, you take a look here, and you can see the upper trace here is uh, is a clean downstream. The downstream spectrum looks really good, but on the lower trace, I've got circled over the air ingress getting in. Now, there's also an impedance mismatch, probably related to the ingress point uh, or points. But you can see uh, uh, in the circled areas there, there's some nasty ingress getting into the downstream. And it shows up on, on uh, full band capture. So this is a really, really powerful tool for tracking down ingress. Other tips and techniques. Um, many of the field meters that have been available for the last several years have what's called an ingress scan mode. What you do is hook the, the meter up to the drop out at the tap. Uh, you don't hook the meter up to the to the tap port. You hook it up to the drop, so you're looking for garbage coming out of the house. So if there's ingress getting in through a loose connector or bad splitter or whatever, that's going to come back up the drop, and you can check for it with this ingress scan mode in your meter. Some field meters also have a, an ability to look under the carrier, if you will, because it, what it basically does is digitally remove the uh, the SC qualm signal and lets you see the noise floor underneath active channels. So you don't have to turn them off, and then you look for uh, stuff that's that's under the qualm signal, if you will, without necessarily being visible um, on the spectrum display itself. Now another another very very powerful tool for managing ingress and leakage is pressure testing the subscriber drop, and this involves connect, connecting a transmitter um, to the drop. You can do this out at the pole. Uh, or you can do it at the, at the ground block. Some techs will do both. They'll do it first at the pole or and then maybe at the ground block or vice versa. And then you go in, go inside the house with a leakage detector and, and uh, listen for that, uh, that transmitted pressure test signal. It's, it's called a pressure test signal because it's typically transmitted at a fairly high level, upwards of you know, 40 to 60 dBmV. And uh, if there's a loose F connector or, or something else going on in the – subscriber drop or the home wiring, um, you'll find it, particularly with uh, that transmitted signal. So this pressure testing is a real good tool. Yes, it I, takes a few extra minutes, but it works well. No, but I think it saves so much time in identifying bad connectors, loose connectors, damaged cables in, in subscribers' homes that it's it's absolutely worth the time to do that. Oh, yes. Um, Ron, uh, Jer, Jer K says, Ron, how nice to hear from you. Greetings from Poland. You are an infinite source of knowledge. Face, red heart shapes. I think he's giving you a nice little <laughs> heart there. For the kind words. Yes. And, and Renee's just say, uh, thanking Peter Vittman for um, uh, his information on OFDMA. But um, so 
more 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 thanks to Peter. Thanks you, Peter, for uh, your right. information. Appreciate the comments. Keep keep them coming. All right. Uh, there's one other I want to mention since I've been giving plugs to a variety of vendors here. And no, this is not intended to be a commercial, but I do want to give be fair about it and mention the companies that I'm aware of. There's one product called CPAT Flex, and I think this comes from Effigis, that does GPS-based geolocation. And this is pretty cool the way it works. Put a transmitter in the vehicle. Uh, the vehicle transmits in the, uh, the ISM band around six megahertz. I think you have to have a license to do this. Um, but the um, the signal includes GPS data, transmitter ID number, and some other information. And tech drives around, and if, if this, if this, uh, if there's a place where ingress can get in, this six megahertz signal will get into the upstream spectrum, go back to the head end where it's received, and 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 the uh, geolocation data is tracked and logged. And at the same time, the tech driving around is also monitoring for leakage, and. Uh, all this information is recorded so you can determine if, if a given, let's say, a crack in the cable is a place where ingress is getting in and where leakage is getting out. You may find that in some cases, all right, ingress is getting in through this crack, uh, but leakage is getting out through a loose connector, but not necessarily both at the same place. So it's, there's some interesting things that can come out of this technical or this technique. So it, it's... Uh, um, I think it's pretty clever. There's there's been some white papers written on this and some um, some good articles written on this uh, this approach, and it seems to work quite well. So yet another tool in the toolbox. So as we get close to um, wrapping up um, the material in in today's presentation, I think all three of the things that we talked about in part one and um, and a little bit more here in part two with an emphasis in, on ingress. But all three of these things are related to degraded RF shielding. That's the bottom line. So um, if the signal uh, shielding integrity of your cable network is compromised for any reason, leakage can occur, which can, can of course, cause harmful interference to over-the-air services. Uh, ingress from over-the-air signals, whether whether it's broadcast-type signals or two-way radio or whatever, or you know electrical noise or interference, uh, can get into the plant and interfere with our cable signals. And interestingly, and I think this goes back to one of the questions I didn't answer, but the uh, we'll call it the, those frequencies that people want to avoid. Some cable operators have actually abandoned certain affected frequencies because um, of severe ingress problems. And um, yeah, that will get you uh, get you uh, through your day to day operations. But the reality is, think of those frequencies is valuable real estate and that's not yep. a viable long-term solution. There's just, you can't keep doing that. You, if you have a lot of ingress problems and you, you uh, abandon certain frequencies or don't use certain frequencies because of the ingress, you're basically giving, you're not taking advantage of the real estate you've got. Uh, so you got to eventually get out there and fix those problems so that you can use those uh, abandoned frequencies or unused frequencies. Frequencies are limited. Well, and they're, and they're money. Yep. Indeed That's an important point. They, they, it's, it goes back to the old thing. We'd like to joke the DB or decibel, but DB means dollar bills, and that's the same with frequencies. And then, of course, direct pickup interference is similar to ingress. In fact, can be thought of as a type of ingress. can affect uh, customer premises equipment and other devices, some field meters and other things, particularly older devices, old, older instruments, um, older CPE, tend to be more susceptible to newer ones. Um, have much better shielding performance. Um, I think the manufacturers have have paid attention to what the cable industry wants and said, "Hey, we need uh, better shielding on on the CPE and other devices." And they've uh, answered the, the question with better products over the years, which is good. I've also found that some head end and test equipment is susceptible to direct pickup interference. Um, this has been discovered in years past, where maybe there was an LTE tower next to the head end building or the hub site building, and it got directly into some of the test equipment, and techs would. Disconnect the input cable from the spectrum analyzer, terminate the input, and then the interference is still there. That's uh, direct pickup, so it can't happen. No. So as we wrap up here, so approach this, this whole thing, leakage, ingress, direct pickup interference from several perspectives. Manage your signal levels. So manage the CMTS, the cable modem configurations for the best performance, um, or at least the, uh, as, as good as you can get it for your plant. Uh, manage RF signal levels, especially in the upstream. That can help you manage the signal-to-junk ratio, but keep in mind that 
managing those signal levels doesn't get rid of the ingress. It just helps you perhaps live with it a little bit better because you're helping to improve the signal to jump ratio to a point. Uh, re proper return path alignment. So that's all the distribution actives, so line extenders and, and everything. Even your optical links should be uh, properly aligned. Um, you need to do VHF and UHF leakage detection, monitoring, and repair. Find and fix leakage across the spectrum, um, whether it's VHF or UHF. All that's going to help to reduce ingress problems. And as the industry migrates to high-split architectures, you find that the cable modems become signal sources for leakage test signals because now you're in the upstream spectrum, and that upstream spectrum now overlaps the aeronautical band. So what you can do is use what's called an OUDP testing burst from DOCSIS 3.1 cable modems yep. and uh, monitor for leakage. Of course, you need compatible leak detectors, but they're out there. Uh, so the, the cable modems become uh, the leakage detector or the leakage detection test signals. Avoid future problems uh, by using high-quality components. Make sure that the staff is properly trained on installation techniques. Have a good QC program. Training. Use training. A, oh, that's, that's so important, <laughs> QC. Use various tools to monitor for ingress, uh, such as upstream spectrum monitoring. There are third-party um, products out there, such as PathTrack. Uh, CMTSs often have the ability to monitor the upstream. Uh, In-home spectrum monitoring, such as full-band capture. Uh, use newer, better-shielded CPE to the extent you can. Same with test equipment. That helps to reduce direct pickup problems. And this is a pretty important one, and I don't think we've done enough of this. Educate subscribers, your customers, yes. about um, why it's not a good idea to run to the local big box store and buy retail-grade cables and splitters and things, because those things often have really poor performance when it comes to RF shielding. And... I know that Cable Labs did some testing several years ago, and they found that the that the performance of most of the retail grade stuff was just awful. Absolutely Cheap connectors, awful. bad shielding. Oh yes. yeah, it's I mean they're gold plated, so they must be better, right? <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Platinum plated. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> some additional resources. Check the FCC rules, uh, Part seventy six, Subpart K, technical standards. Um, there's a technical report on UHF leakage ingress and direct pickup on SCTE's website. This document has been updated uh, to a newer version. I don't think it's been posted yet. I'll have to check. Um, this is a correct uh, URL that will get you to the 2015 version, which I think is still on the standards download page. A lot of good information in there. Um, the paper that Greg Tresnes and I did in 2012 at Cable Tech Expo, um, this is where we did the deep dive into the why you've got to monitor at multiple frequencies across the spectrum. Uh, there was some eye-opening stuff that came out of this presentation. And then uh, Nick Segura and I teamed up to do one in 2013 on uh, understanding UHF leakage and ingress. And, and uh, these are available on the Fall Technical Forum uh, website archives. Uh, oh, wait a minute. No, they may not be on there. Um, trying to think how far back those go. Uh, those... Those may not go back as far as 2012. It's 2012, yeah. Yeah, they may not be back there yet. Anyway, but these, these papers are out there in the proceedings. Um, and, of course, we can get copies if necessary. But uh, anyway, good stuff, good reference material. And uh, if you missed part one, there's the URL for it. And I, I know that uh, Brady will encourage you to go back and look at it, if nothing else, for, uh, for a uh, kind of a good overview of, of the introductory material we went through last time. And then uh, it serves as a good foundation for what we talked about today. And uh, with that, questions. Awesome material. Yeah, so we got some questions uh, or some information in the chat room here. So Peter added, he said, I heard that uh, Comcast has identified loose connectors with P&M in the past, frequency response to identify all, um, also sources for ingress. Is this right? So yes, loose connectors, a micro reflection, and right? Well, what it is, is, is um, and it doesn't work 100% of the time, but it works a substantial percentage of the time. And if you use proactive network maintenance, in particular, um, look at the in-channel frequency response on an sc qualm signal, you look for what's called a 1T echo. And uh, where you have the 1T echo, that is usually, not always, but usually somewhere in the in-home wiring or in the subscriber drop, and is usually indicative of a loose connector. And in many cases they found that they were able to call the subscriber and say, we're getting some, you know, some interference or worded such that uh, didn't sound like they were being snooped on, but um, say we're getting some interference from the modem that suggests maybe there's a loose connector on the modem or perhaps your set-top box. And we'll hold while you go check it. 
and the subscriber would go check it and tight. Yep, it was loose, and they yeah. tightened it. And lo and behold, the one T echo went away, and um, the in-channel frequency response problem went away. So yes, that technique does work. Um, as I said, not a hundred percent of the time, but a substantial percentage of the time. It's a pretty, it's a pretty good way to to at least avoid uh, a lot of truck rolls. Yeah. And those those connectors can be a source of return path ingress as well. Yes. Uh, so um, Ready Kilowatt says, my head end had an LPTV transmitter and LTE lower across the street. Um, oh, ouch. It's going to cause a lot of issues. Um, yes. He also said, convert multi-set-top box homes to wireless. Um, so That's a thought. But keep in mind, the wireless spectrum is uh, going to be noisy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Business Bambi says swamped at work, but I'll catch the VOD later. So thanks again for watching Business Bambi. Renee says finally got to catch one of these live. Thanks, Brady and Ron. Loving all these sessions you've been doing together. Not throwing any shade at John Downey. (laughs) Love when he is he is on as well. Uh, Jerk says, Ron, does screening of modems itself pause a role in adding ingress to the network and how to deal with it? Say that again? He says, does screening of modems itself play a, I think he says, play a role in adding ingress? Oh, the shielding of the modems. Okay, that sounds like a European uh, term for screening. Yes, the shielding. Okay. Does that play a role in? Uh, um, In adding ingress to the network and how to deal with it. It's possible. Um, older CPE often were not well shielded and were more susceptible to direct pickup interference. Um, so that would be more likely to affect the downstream. But it is conceivable that a strong ingress source could get in through a poorly shielded cable modem or set-top box. Um, and in that case, you you probably can take a couple approaches uh, to deal with this. One, of course, would be to replace the older device with a newer device that has better screening or better shielding. Uh, The other one that that I found that works reasonably well in the return path is to put a common mode choke at the input to the affected device. Because oftentimes, a common mode current propagates down the drop cable and reaches the device, let's say a cable modem that has not so good shielding, and gets into the uh, cable modem becomes a differential mode signal. Um, and, and the one way you can help reduce that, and it's kind of a kind of a pain, but it requires a customer visit, is you coil up about 10 feet or roughly three meters of drop cable into a multi-turn loop about five or six inches in diameter, put some tie wraps on it, and have that loop of cable right at the input to the cable modem or set-top box. And that can help um, at least reduce... Um, some of the the uh, direct pickup interference that we just talked about that does work. I've tested that in a lab environment, and and some operators have played around with that in the field. But you do need that extra bit of cable. And if you can further put a piece of uh, oh, what is it, number sixty one ferrite material around that loop, that will improve the common mode rejection of that common mode choke even better. Yeah, and I've seen a number of techs that have also taught me that same thing with the common mode chokes. I, I think that's that's a pretty would, well known thing by um, by some of the older techs who who are well. Well, they probably this. remember the article I wrote about that <laughs> way. <laughs> you. I was in communications <laughs> technology a couple decades ago or more. Um, I'm, I want to say maybe in the late '90s, early yep. 2000 time frame, because I did some experiments with that. And then uh, I was writing about it and encouraging people to do that and talked about it in technical seminars and at SCTE and stuff. So that's, it's an old ham radio trick, but it works. Yeah. I've been reading your stuff since I started in the industry too, Ron. So, well, Ron, you and I are going to be a cable tech expo in October. Um, Folks, please join. If you can, you can find me in the open vault booth. I'll also be moderating a panel um, on Tuesday at 8 a.m., Uh, at Expo titled Swimming Upstream Doesn't Need to Be Hard. That's going to be in room 103. On 8 a.m. on Wednesday, I'm co-author on a panel titled Data-Driven Optimizing and Running HFC and Fiber Networks, end-to-end, also in room 103. Again, on Wednesday, Ron and I will be participating in what's called P&M Live at 12 p.m., in the technical training theater on the main show floor where we'll be showing how PNM works for real in the field. And finally, on Wednesday at 3 p.m., I'll be participating in the Security Summit Lightning Talk session sponsored by Cable Labs 
in room 104. So room 103 and 104 are going to be the places to be. Ron, I know you'll also be at, um, speaking as well, too, correct? Do you know um, when and where? Uh, I, I think it's room 105, Thursday morning, 8 a.m., so that's a rough time slot because oftentimes people are out late the night before. Yeah and come straggling into the, uh, the technical sessions, but, uh, um, I'm moderating a panel there and then I'm a, uh, the presenter on another paper on cable modem transmit headroom. And I don't recall the uh, room and the times for that. I think that's earlier in the week. Um, but that's a, that's a pretty good, uh, topic in itself. Yes, it is. We it's went much more the, complicated uh, we, than what you think. We went over the SCTE limit on uh, word count. I think we had about 12,000 words in that, but it's a really, really comprehensive uh, presentation. Um, the paper's worth a read. It's uh, 30-something pages, but our eyes were open, and I say <laughs> our, the, the group of co-authors on this paper, were really open when we started looking at, at cable modem transmit headroom a little bit more closely. It's not as simple as you might think. Yes. So these are all going to be great sessions. Uh, if you can attend Cable Tech Expo, there's going to be a lot of great papers. These are going to be great sessions to attend, so please, please do attend. Um, a massive thank you to you, Ron. Every time you bring such clarity to some of these really complex topics and you help us navigate them through with ease, um, we really, really appreciate your wealth of knowledge. Um, you continue to enrich our minds, Ron. Um, to our audience, thank you everyone for watching. To everyone in the chat room, thanks so much for your, your insights, your questions. Um, keep them coming. You know, th these questions often in, um, drive our show and end up sometimes even creating uh, new topics that we, we continue to evolve and build on. So thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll be back soon with more to follow you. So everyone, so long. Ron, so long. Great hanging out with you again for another Thanks for hour. the kind words again, and thanks to everybody for joining us uh, for today's session. Yes. Goodbye, all.